0: Good morning. Christianity is unique among religions in that it's based on an historical event—the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Safe to say, that if the resurrection had not occurred, if it could have been disproved, Paul would have remained a Pharisee. He wouldn't have gone anyone to tell. Anyone, anywhere, to tell anyone if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead. When we think of historical events, you rely on eyewitness evidence to determine if an event really occurred. Some people say that Christianity isn't based on science, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Science is based on in a in an environment being able to reproduce the same results over and over. We can't prove historical events based on science. We Confirm the plausibility of historical events based on eyewitness evidence. Were there individuals who saw the event in question? And did they write anything down? And what's the time span between the time of the event and the time of the records of the event? The fewer the people, The greater the time span, the more you can call into question whether something occurred, and that's the way you determine if a historical event is plausible, if it really happened. Uh, In light of this, um, Paul, when he speaks of the resurrection, introduces um, eyewitness evidence. He talks in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Peter, Who saw Christ after he died, raised from the dead, eyewitnesses, and he talks about the twelve, the five hundred, James, other apostles, and Paul himself. Paul sees himself as the last link in a chain of apostles. Paul writes and spoke in a culture, and environment in which visions, dreams, and ecstatic experiences were not unusual. People had them all the time, claimed to hear things from deities that they passed on. Others had visions of Christ and revelations, some of which they wrote down. Paul, though, would say he is the last in a series, the last one to see Christ physically alive on the far side of the resurrection, on the far side of the resurrection before he returned to heaven. The resurrection of Christ is, according to Paul, historical fact. Um, Eyewitnesses validated it. Individuals wrote about it. Leaves us with a couple of questions, though, that Paul deals with as he talks about so what? Why is it important to believe Jesus did rise from the dead, and a related question, why is it important to believe that we will rise from the dead? Look um, what it says, First Corinthians 15. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Um, Why is it important to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Paul ticks off some reasons and will look that the Corinthians are calling into question whether the resurrection actually occurs, where the people actually rise from the dead. And what Paul does is is he says, well, if if we don't raise from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, that doesn't leave us with a whole lot with respect to Christianity. Uh, Christianity stands or falls on the basis of the resurrection and Paul Resurrection out of Christianity, the way you pull some things out of Jenga. Everything collapses. I mean, Paul it is, but he ticks off some reasons. Uh, well, if that, if the resurrection doesn't occur, Paul says, my message is empty. He says, not only that, the gospel is a hoax. It's either a deliberate prevaricate, prevarication, or it's something that is people who are Deluded believe uh, apostles are liars; heaven is off limits, and death wins that 's if the resurrection hasn 't occurred. Christianity stands or falls based on the resurrection of Christ, and the way Paul describes Jesus with respect to the resurrection bodily is that Jesus is the first fruits. What first fruits is first fruits is in Israel at the time, there were two harvests every year there was a first harvest. That they planted in springtime and harvested at the beginning of summer, and then you, they planted again, and then there was a second harvest in the beginning of fall. So if you plant a crop in ground, all things being equal, if that crop comes up in a first harvest, that's the first fruits, and what can you assume? All things being equal, if you're, if there's enough rainfall, a an initial harvest points to the fact it's logical to believe that there's a second one, the first one being the first fruits. It's a basis of confidence. It's, yeah, my land's pretty good. Look at that coming up, and I think I'm gonna have a second harvest because you yeah. know well, that's the first fruits. Um Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits. Again, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits Of those who have fallen asleep, that for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Firstfruits, when it applies to a crop, it's... Indicates that the first crop gives us confidence in the second. When applied to people, the first fruits is the first person in a line. And the assumption is that if somebody leads the way, that others will follow. First fruits means they'll be second and third and fourth. So with respect to a person, if the initial one is first fruits, then the ones who follow behind will somehow be impacted by what happens to the first one. That's what Paul indicates. The image is those at the beginning of a line who then become the representatives of those who follow. And as it applies to Jesus, the representative, Jesus, determines the fate of those who line up behind. And there are two leaders, Paul would indicate, and we all fall in line behind one of two people and as they go so we go and if we are thinking about our eternal destiny all we have to do is look at the representatives because they are the first fruits and what happens to them will happen to us and there's two of them again there's adam and christ and we fall in line be- behind one or the other that's it either adam is our representative or christ is our representative all those bound to Adam, for whom Adam was firstfruits, share his banishment from Eden, his alienation, and the fate of death. We already know that happened to him. And so those who line up behind Adam are going to experience what Adam experienced. All those bound to Christ will experience what Christ experienced. He's the firstfruits. Um, that's reconciliation. His resurrection and heavenly blessings. So, either Christ is our representative or Adam is. We are in Adam by nature. You don't have to do anything to line up behind Adam. We are in Christ by faith. You have to believe. What are you supposed to believe? On the third day, the tomb was empty. And Paul would say, there's witnesses, there's Peter, and there's 12, and there's 500. You can talk to them. And at the point, Jesus, and why is it important to believe that? Because that's the basis of our hope. Jesus is the first fruits, And if you line up behind him, what happened to him will happen to you. Um, why is it important to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The best answer? Because he is our representative. He's the first in line, and we line up behind him. The most common answer, I don't think it's the best. We talked about it briefly. We'll talk about it briefly this morning. Um, The most common answer is not because he is our representative, but because Jesus is our substitute. And to some degree, this could be said. I think representative is a better answer. And if you're looking to define who Jesus is, is he our substitute? Is he our representative? I'd say stick with representative. With substitute, with that, how that goes. As our substitute, God punishes Jesus in our place. God is stuck between his love for man and his hatred for sin. These represent something inside God that he can't reconcile, so he has to do something with that. And by punishing Jesus, his son, God's love and wrath are satisfied. Jesus becomes our substitute. And uh, so, why does God Jesus need to be God so that God can punish his son as our substitute. And Paul, when he talks about Jesus, he died for our sins, but he points out that Jesus is more representative than substitute. That's what he says here. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. Paul points to Jesus as our representative. It says in Galatians All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What it indicates. The book of the law, the Old Testament commands, it says this, If you don't continue to do everything, Everything, everything in Greek means everything, everything written, you are under a curse. If you covet, if you steal, if you do this or that, you are cursed if you fall once. How many are cursed? We're all cursed. That's that's the implication of that. So, and then what it says, um, it goes on. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, Christ is cursed as well, like us. We're cursed because we haven't done everything written in the book of the law. Jesus is cursed because of one of those things in small writing. Everyone hung on a tree is a curse. That's what it says. In the Bible, Saul, we're cursed because we break the law. Jesus is cursed because he was hung on a tree. But what Jesus represents then, the cursed, right? Right? Okay, so he is our representative and... That's what we are to believe, that he is cursed as we are. So, hes we're cursed because we don't do everything. He's cursed because he's hung on a tree. The resurrection reveals God's decision with respect to the fate of the cursed who have violated Old Covenant law. Like being charged, the way it feels, if we're in a courtroom and you are waiting, you are going, you've been charged with a crime, And let's say I'm the judge and there is a guy right here who has been tried for that crime, same crime you have been charged with. You're up, you're on deck. And when I render a judgment concerning him, is that going to be of interest to you? If you're charged with the same crime, you don't know me. What am I going to decide? And what I decide for him, I'm going to decide for you. So you're going to listen very carefully to what I say. That's how we're to understand what happens at the cross. Christ represents those cursed under old covenant law. What does God do with a cursed one who believes the good news? He raises them from the dead. How do we know that? How do we know God raises cursed people under Old Covenant Law from the dead? How do we know? The resurrection, the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. That's what happened. Cursed raised. If you are standing in line behind Him, what's going to happen to you? You're going to rise out of the dead. How do you know? How do you know? it's not just because you think so it's not just because you get a shiver in your back and you know when you think of it your eyelids twitch it's, it's how do you know there's historical evidence there are witnesses they saw him and as our representative what god does and decides for jesus god will decide for us um, why is it important to believe that jesus rose from the dead our faith in christ becomes rooted on Solid ground, solid ground, not a hope, not a wish, evidence backed up by eyewitnesses, validated by changed lives. Um, We who are sinful and cursed can have hope, concrete hope, hope firmly rooted in an historical event, the resurrection. Okay, why is it important to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead so we can have a firm basis of hope? our representative, and we stand in line behind him. Why is it important to believe that we will rise from the dead? doesn't necessarily follow from the first. You know, Why is it so important to believe that some have fallen asleep? Some of your dads and mothers have fallen asleep in Christ, and they're not here bodily. They're in the ground in an urn. Um, Why is it important to believe that they'll rise? Because what the Bible indicates, Jesus is going to come a second time. And when he comes, those who are in the ground, whose spirits separated from their body at death, the body, when Jesus comes a second time, is going to be, Reconstituted. It. It's going to be raised. People whose ashes are sprinkled here, there, and everywhere, God's not going to have any problem finding them, putting them together. You know, Jesus, you have to work on this one. You know, they spread his ashes in South Dakota, they spread part of him in Wisconsin, so just, you know, do your best. You know, it's not like that. I don't know how this works, but God's not going to have any problem putting ashes together, and people are going to rise bodily out of the grave and join with their spirits and that's the way paul sees how things are going to occur when we die spiritually if through faith in christ we go to him but our body stays behind christ comes a second time and when he comes body is raised spirit enters body and guess what we get to live in the form that jesus lives in right now Raised from the dead. Did Jesus rise bodily or just spirit? Did they find a body in the tomb? No, grave clothes all crumpled together. He was raised bodily. Once Jesus entered a body, he didn't leave it. He didn't leave it. He became embodied. You know why? Because you or I are embodied. He's our representative. Then he needs to be Embodied. Like us. That's why Jesus came. So he could be first in line. And you could look at him and say, okay, let me see. I get to stand behind Adam. Eey, that's not a real good picture. I, not, if I have a choice between standing behind Adam or standing behind Christ, I'm going to pick Jesus. <laughs> that makes sense. What happens to him happens to those who stand behind him, put their faith in him. Um Why is it important to believe that we will rise from the dead? Uh, This is the question that Paul posed at the beginning of this section. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul deals with Christ's bodily resurrection first. Then he returns to the question of our bodily resurrection The Corinthians would have believed something that many believe, maybe perhaps not explicitly, but what the Corinthians would have believed that humans are composed of two parts body and soul. That one of those is pretty valuable and the other one is minimally valuable. The soul, the spirit, that's valuable. That's what you want to protect the body, eh, take it or leave it. You know, it's a temporary house, it's a temporary shelter, a temporary dwelling. The body doesn't matter to God as much. Your spirit does, your soul does. That's what the Corinthians would have believed. Soul and spirit really matter to God. That's what, yeah, this body is, you know, yeah, something you have to live with. Something breaks down, not really important. And so it's likely that um, they thought of death the way many do. That the spirit leaves and, and good riddance leaves the body behind. It was a pain in the neck, anyways. You know, I got it pain and breaking down. And um, you know, you know, it's true that God made a few perfect heads, covered the brothers with hair. You know, but you know, but then so you might have hair day. No, shut up. Okay, you understand what I mean? Um, we have we have issues we deal with. Good riddance, leave it behind. Be a spirit, rise up to be with God, floating around like all other spirits float around. That's not the way Paul would have seen it. Um, Paul rejects any idea of soul and spirit without a body. And now um, this is kind of strange to us. why, Why make such a big deal? But Jews really, they really made a big deal. Greeks believed that soul and body, spirit and body, It doesn't really matter. Jews never believed that. They believed that it doesn't make sense to conceive of a soul or a spirit without a body. For them, it didn't make sense. That's not the way they thought of things. And that's why Paul rejects this idea. Angels or spirits floating around in heaven unembodied. What he would say, no, 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 no. You were will. Exist in the form Jesus exists in, if you are behind Christ. Jesus was raised bodily. If you stand behind him, you will be raised bodily. You will live in that form. Those in Adam will not live in that form. They won't be there. Um, Everything, again, the difference between Old Testament and New Testament seems to be one thing that seems to be. Would you agree with me that Old Testament is, I'm going to throw a word at it, antibody? Antibody, Old Testament is? um, Anything associated with birth, death, or reproduction in the Old Testament makes somebody unclean. Menstrual period, eh, touch a dead body, eh, anything associated with birth, death, and reproduction makes a person unclean. It, the Old Covenant, it doesn't bring us a sense that God sympathizes with the body. Those who represent God do not do so. How about in the New Testament? The New Testament surfaces something that we're going to take a look at in a series. We're going to talk next, after two weeks, we're going to depart from the, we've been follow along with serendipity and doing a Sunday school class before dealing with the same passage. So this morning, Randy, um, they had a a deal dealt with the same passage, dealt with questions. We're going to put that on hold for the summer, so there's not going to be any 9 o'clock Sunday school in three weeks. We're not going to do a serendipity series, which is the basis of the Sunday school, and we don't sit... Yeah, anyway. What we're going to do, we're going to depart from that. So again, in three weeks, we're not going to have a 9 o'clock Sunday school. What we're going to talk about is sympathy and sovereignty. And we're going to look at why divine sympathy is so important. We believe in the sovereignty of God, but what we'll look at why it's important to believe in the sympathy of God Um In taking on a body, God reveals that he understands what it's like to live in a body. Jesus understands physical hunger. He understands the fear of death. He understands things we who are embodied understand. The reason he understands them is because he came to understand them. What Jesus reveals is that God sympathizes now, through his Son, with us, as bodies and spirit. Does body matter to God? You know you think of it? Every time you find an unclean spirit, biblically, they're always hurting a body. The unclean spirit enters this guy and he gashes himself with rocks. Unclean spirits enter pigs and they plunge into a lake. Unclean spirits throw this guy into the fire. Every, and the devil wants to give Job sores and, and wants to kill those close to him. It, well, you find that there's opposition to the body, hurting the body. And people would have had the sense that God doesn't care about the body. What do we find with Jesus? Can you think of a time where Jesus ever hurt anybody physically? I no. You know what he did to people? He healed them. He felt compassion for people in pain. You know why he did? Because he was expressing, that's how God feels. Your body matters to God, as your spirit does. Does that change things at all? It's interesting, though. We'll talk about that in the next series. Um, The resurrection of the dead is essential to God's purposes. Look what it says in the second part. Then comes the end, Paul continues, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, and to to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. When Paul talks about dying every day, He's not talking about being martyred every day, but facing the results of putting his life on the line, shipless, destitute, impoverished, being in places where he was not comfortable. And he says, what do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, Eat, drink, and be merry. That was the way the Romans believed. And it was based on the fact that You only go around once in life, so you better grab it now. Because what's going to happen? The body's going to be left behind and the spirit's going to go. So if you are going to indulge the body, you better indulge it while the going is good. Because when you get up there, you won't be up there bodily, to which Paul says, yes, you will. I'm not sure what heaven's going to be like. We're going to eat in heaven? Jesus ate what will it be like to be an embodied being when the body and the spirit are perfectly aligned, when we're not contemptuous of ourselves or others? What will that be like to have a perfect relationship with other people, to be able to get to know other people deeply? Will we experience physical things? Will we enjoy trees in heaven? There seems to be trees there. What kind of experience will heaven be? It will be an embodied experience. I'm not sure what it will be like, but everything that he tells us, it's going to be worth waiting for. And that's what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand. Hold out. It 's not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, because what ends up happening in sometime after tomorrow you're going to be raised from the dead and go into a place where he is or where he is not. Paul wants him to go to the place where he is. Um, the resurrection of the dead marks death's destruction um. If you have suffered the loss of a dad, death is an enemy. It indicates that while God has allowed it, death is God's enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This process of destroying death began with the resurrection of Christ. Somebody who cursed and he was raised, death tried to hold him and he wasn't able to do so. This process of destroying death will be completed after, with the resurrection of Christians when Jesus comes again. Robbed of its victims, death's threatening menace is neutralized. Our bodily resurrection will defeat death once and for all. It will be ushered out of the affairs of mankind Forever. Forever. There will be no death in heaven, a thousand, a million, ten million million—death. It will be gone. It's been allowed for a time. And we who look at that, Paul would have us line up behind Christ and believe that as Christ rose, so... Those who believe in him will rise. I saw this I like this the lyrics of this song from a couple decades ago, two or three yeah, how many? Maybe three or four. Um, by Petra. What? What? Pet Pet Okay, yeah. Um, Grave Robber is what it is the lyrics. There's a step that we all take alone. An appointment we have with the great unknown, like a vapor. This life is just waiting to pass, like the flowers that fade, like the withering grass. But life seems so long, and death so complete, and the grave an impossible portion to cheat, but there's one who has been there, and still lives to tell. There is one who has been through both heaven and hell, and the grave will come up empty-handed that day. Jesus will come and steal us away. Where is the sting? Tell me, where is the bite? When the grave robber comes like a thief in the night, where is the victory? Where is the prize? When the grave robber comes and death finally dies, many still mourn. And many still weep for those that they love who have fallen asleep. But we have this hope. Though our hearts may still ache, just one shout from above, and they all will awake. And in the reunion of joy, we will see death will be swallowed. In sweet victory. In Paul's mind, no resurrection means a hopeless end. That's not the reality. There is a resurrection and that means endless hope. Father, thank you for providing a concrete basis for our hope, for our faith. In an historical event, you supply witnesses and records of what happened. So now 2,000 years after the fact, we still can revisit the empty tomb through the eyewitnesses and their words, and we can find what they found, a miraculous belief in the resurrection of the body and the spirit. And Jesus, being the first, those who put their faith in him, line up behind him, will experience what he experienced. This gives us something firm to base our faith in. We'll be alive a thousand years from now. Existing in the same form that Jesus exists in. Pray that you'd continue to allow us to think of these thoughts, to allow them to remain in our mind, to put our hope in them, to find, to, to sit and rest in them. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.